You are listening to an exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. This is Jorge Fascinetti, and welcome. Dr. Kevin Ewan and Dr. Louis Blevins are both nationally and internationally renowned for their work in neuroendocrinology and pituitary disease. Today, they offer their advice and discuss a variety of critical subjects related to COVID-19. In this podcast, Drs. Ewan and Blevins talk about the types of pituitary patients that are more susceptible to COVID-19 infection. They discuss why and how acromegaly and Cushing patients are prone to develop diabetes and what they should do if faced with COVID-19 infection. They also touched on the increased risk of infections of patients with adrenal insufficiency and Cushing's and how to stress those if they develop symptoms. Active Cushing's syndrome patients need to be aware of the additional treatment steps that are essential to reduce susceptibility to this virus. What should you do if you suspect infection and what steps are needed in case of being quarantined at home? What specific signs or symptoms you need to look out for to monitor for progress or deterioration while being quarantined? And what should you do if you need to seek help? Don't miss this extremely informational podcast and please send us your comments through our social media channels and our website or email to info at pituitaryworldnews.com. Here are Dr. Blevins and Dr. Ewan. I'm here with Dr. Kevin Ewan and Dr. Lewis Blevins. And first, I want to thank you both for being with me and taking being here with us and taking the time out of your busy day uh, to chat with us about um, these important subjects. I know that um, you both have getting a lot of questions from patients on COVID-19. So why don't we get right into it, uh, into the questions? Um, so what types of endocrine patients are most susceptible to the COVID-19 uh, infections? Dr. Dr. Ewan, why don't you why don't you start with that one? Um, so, from an endocrine standpoint, uh, as you know, endocrine endocrinology affects many uh, systems in the body, um, and I think, given the uh, the profound uh, increase in the numbers, and we are still learning a lot about COVID nineteen, but I think uh, from from what we've known so far, uh, the patients that I think that are most susceptible would be patients with. Uh, uh, poorly controlled diabetes, uh, hypertension, obesity, perhaps even patients with bad sleep apnea, um, and, and certainly patients who have severe adrenal insufficiency and also patients who uh, have very high levels of cortisol, such as patients with severe Cushing's uh, syndrome, where their immune system is perhaps somewhat uh, going to be compromised, or even patients who are uh, on high doses of steroids, which I'm sure many uh, of you uh, providers out there are aware of, steroids are being used uh, somewhat high doses for a variety of conditions, inflammatory conditions. And so I think a lot of these patients may not be aware that they are actually uh, perhaps somewhat susceptible to, uh, to, be, to developing or, or getting, catching the disease or for any infection for that matter. <clears throat> Dr. Dr. Blanis, you want to 
comment on, on this one? Or? Well, I thought that was very well said. Um, one of the things that's been in the back of my mind as I read the news and look at articles and, and talk to colleagues is, are these patients that we're talking about more susceptible or are they just more likely to do poorly? It's, it's remarkable to me the number of young people who are becoming infected with this virus and then a number of young people are actually dying of this virus as well. Um, I'm wondering whether there are a couple of different factors at play. One, do you have to have sort of a, a, an expression of the ACE2 enzyme and protein in your lungs to be more susceptible? Second, uh, we know this virus mutates every 15 days, and it may be now that there's a viral form thrust of this thing in India that seems to have a weaker binding affinity to ACE2 receptor. So does it, ha does it relate to that, you know, which strain of this virus you have or which lineage of this virus you have, because there are now several lineages that came from this same coronavirus. Uh, certainly the patients mentioned are the ones that I'm concerned about. Uh, I don't know whether they have an increased susceptibility or just more likely to potentially do more poorly as a consequence of becoming infected. Okay. So as uh, pituitary patients, particularly acromegaly and Cushing's disease patients are prone to develop diabetes, what should diabetes patients do if infected by um, COVID-19? Well, um, diabetes patients as a whole, um, have, they have uh, a variety of um, issues pertaining to their general health because, as you know, it affects many parts of their body. And certainly if the, the diabetes control is poor, it really does increase their risk of uh, complications. But like Dr. Blevins said earlier, the question is what we don't know is whether the infection uh, whether patients with diabetes are more susceptible to develop infections or whether the patient who is being infected then subsequently develops diabetes or worsening of their diabetes, which then propagates a, 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 a vicious cycle that causes their demise uh, over time. Uh, so these are really very difficult questions, and I don't so think... In other words, sorry for interrupting, but in other words, the diabetes creates, uh, uh, the virus creates what makes the diabetes worse. There are some suggestions uh, that the diabetes, uh, that the virus can actually worsen the, 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 the blood sugars. Um, and actually, we, do, we know that anyway from many other diseases because um, patients in ICU, who are, you know, if they get pneumonia or they get a... Uh, uh, any form of systemic infections, their diabetes generally worsens. So I, so I don't think there's any different from this uh, virus where the virus can actually cause a worsening of their underlying uh, blood sugar control, which then uh, causes a, a, an increased risk of, of complications uh, along the way. Yeah. Uh, so that, that is something I think that needs further study. But on the other hand, the question is, you know, does diabetes patients on the whole uh, before they, are, they get the infection, are they more susceptible than an, uh, a patient without diabetes? Um, and I don't think we know that answer. I'm not sure, Dr. Blavis, uh, you have any insight to that. And the reason I say that is because most of the patients that who die, uh, there's a substantial amount of them who are actually found to be hyperglycemic. But 
um, obviously we don't know what they were like before they were infected. So, yeah, I agree. It's very difficult to figure out whether. Uh, I mean, it's almost a sort of chicken or the egg thing, the horse before the cart thing again. Um, clearly, the stress hormones and people have intact systems. You know, cortisol increases, uh, catecholamines increase. Those things elevate hyperglycemia, and there's a huge body of literature that suggests patients with hyperglycemia do more poorly in hospital settings, especially those who have complicated diabetes with uh, nephropathy, uh, vascular disease, etc. So it re stands to reason that if this, the organism of the human being is stressed uh, by uh, an infectious agent and has these pre-existing complications, the diabetes gets worse and I think the outcome is going to be worse. So and certainly with relation to uh, the acromegaly and Cushing patients who um, un have underlying diabetes, um, we do know that certainly they are a little bit more susceptible. Like, for example, wound healing uh, is delayed um, and infections are certainly, especially skin infections, are more prominent. Um, so I, 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 I'm tempted to think that uh, patients with uh, diabetes or underlying diabetes may be a little bit more susceptible, but I think uh, more data needs to be uh, gleaned off in order for us to be fully uh, aware whether or not it's, uh, it's truly a contributing factor or not. So is that true, doctors, for someone that has controlled diabetes as well? Is it somebody that's hovering in, you know, with a A1Cs of below six with medication? If your diabetes is controlled, any illness can kick that out of control just because of the stress hormones. Uh, but we don't know whether uncontrolled diabetes versus controlled leads to an increased susceptibility to the to this particular virus. Uh, you know, when you think about this virus, how it gains entry into the body, you know, through the respiratory system, uh, and the the um, spike protein on the virus attaches to the ACE2 receptor that's in the lungs. And if it, if it gets in your bloodstream, it attaches to ACE2 receptors elsewhere. There are ACE2 receptors in the heart. And infection there might actually lead to some of the cardiac consequences of uh, COVID-19 infection. Mm. There are probably ACE2 receptors in the GI tract as well. Mm. Uh, so does diabetes affect the amount of those receptors if it's controlled or uncontrolled we don't know um, i think it's going to come down to genetic susceptibility probably uh, when we study this in greater detail whether you have more receptors whether you have drugs that are modulating those receptors there's evidence that men for example have a higher infection rate than women and we know that estrogens modulate the ace2 receptor in the lungs um, some drugs can affect the ACE2 receptors. Some diabetics and heart patients have drugs that affect the amount of ACE2 receptors in the, in the lungs as well that might actually increase their susceptibility if you have a higher number of receptors. Uh, but it may all be a viral load thing. We just don't know. And I think one thing we have to bear in mind as well, so certainly patients who have had diabetes uh, for many years may have other underlying um, diabetic complications despite the fact that they are in good control they may have uh, neuropathy or some degree of nephropathy and diabetic uh, diabetes affecting heart uh, as well so all these uh, issues that diabetes causes uh, subsequently 
not not specifically their high blood sugars, but the the, the subsequent consequence of being a diabetic for many years, uh, uh, causing uh, organ disease, may put them at uh, uh, an increased risk uh, of susceptibility as well. So you mentioned. I think your comment earlier about acromegaly and sleep apnea is one that's well taken. You know, it's uh, you know it's pr- sleep apnea is associated with some cardiovascular mortality, pulmonary. Uh, more, or let me say morbidity, not mortality, a pulmonary morbidity as well. And those things might actually make a patient less likely to have a good outcome or more susceptible. It's again, something that we need to, to be mindful of. But the bottom line is people with acromegaly and Cushing's who have hyperglycemia or diabetes are probably in the group of folks who are potentially at risk if they get infected. Interesting. So you mentioned obesity, and that obviously is quite common in some pituitary patients. Does this make them more susceptible as well? No, I think so. I mean, the, it's again the consequence of what obesity does to your body. You know, um, it increases your risk of hypertension, increases your risk of heart disease, uh, and um, and and affects your your breathing, makes you more susceptible to develop uh, sleep apnea. Um, and uh, certainly makes you less physically active, and, and certainly all these factors do contribute to the overall risk of and sure. of, of developing these uh, these infections. And not only COVID, but I think any other infection for that matter. So- I saw a, I saw a snippet of information somewhere on the internet yesterday that suggested that you start seeing an increased risk of an adverse outcome for COVID-19 infection when the BMI exceeds 26 and your risk is higher, the higher your BMI. Interesting. Uh, So uh, let's switch a little bit now to the discussion of uh, adrenal insufficiency and and Cushing syndrome. Uh, Are are those patients uh, at an increased risk of contracted COVID-19? Um, patients with uh, adrenal insufficiency, definitely they, um, especially those with severe adrenal insufficiency are definitely are more prone to catch infections. And we know that certainly from the data that we have for patients uh, with uh, uh, adrenal insufficient, uh, sorry, Addison's disease, where they have very severe adrenal insufficiency, um, and uh, we know that uh, they are prone to develop um, uh, electrolyte imbalances from um, diarrhea, vomiting, and, and, and electrolyte losses and fluid losses. And certainly, you know, uh, an infection like that could almost al- could al- is always almost going to propagate that uh, the fluid uh, loss uh, and propagate uh, an adrenal crisis as well. So definitely, especially if they are not um, being adequately replaced on, on hydrocortisone or, or any or, or dexamethasone or whatever glucocorticoid that they are on, this makes them definitely a little bit more prone to, to develop uh, problems uh, with uh, infections. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that uh, these patients are even at greater risk uh, or the risk is compounded, if you will, by virtue of the fact that if they don't make an appropriate early enough increase in glucocorticoid supplementation, doing the stress dose recommendations, for example, 
I think they can get behind uh, in the management of the COVID-19 infection pretty quickly. Uh, and actually, we do know that uh, in some studies that um, primary adrenal insufficiency is actually, in fact, associated with impaired natural immunity function uh, with some degree of defective action of, of neutrophils and natural killer cells. And this may actually, in fact, explain in part the slightly increased rate of infectious diseases seen in these patients, as well as perhaps also um, studies have also shown an increased rate of overall mortality, uh, specifically uh, in patients with primary adrenal insufficiency. Yeah. So how, um, how do you then uh, stress those if they develop sy symptoms of suggestive uh, COVID-19? I would suggest that uh, they have a low threshold of stress dosing themselves and not wait until it gets worse. So um, if they feel unwell, non-specifically unwell, and sometimes we know, uh, actually we know that uh, from reading the, uh, the, the way how COVID-19 affects patients, some patients can be quote unquote relatively asymptomatic, but some patients may feel a little bit under the weather as well and they may not even know it. Mm -hmm. So I think the bottom line is they need to be told, need to be educated these patients they, that uh, they should have a low threshold um, if they've to be very, very cognizant about how they feel and have a low threshold of actually stress dosing. And I would think the way they would stress dose would be to double or triple the dose when they are when they start to stress dose uh, or if they have a fever and keep that dose going at least until um, the, the fever or at least they uh, subsides or improves or, or they, they are showing some signs of improvement in symptoms. But it's also very important to tell them not to overdo it for too long because clearly if they are stress dosing for too long, when they know that their infection is, uh, has subsided, then, you know, the other problems might arise as well from too much of, uh, of steroids being administered. Mm -hmm. To speak conceptually about this for, for a little while, I think it's important for patients to understand that the symptoms of an illness initially are related to the things that your immune system is releasing into the circulation in response to an infection. The fever, for example, it could be bacterial particles or virus particles that have been destroyed, but all the cytokines, lymphokines, tumor necrosis factor, et cetera, released by the immune system are what causes you to feel miserable and achy and to feel like you have the flu. And when we stress dose, if you think of it this way, the immune system is designed to attack and kill, and it's going to go full bore if it needs to. And when we stress this, we're trying to modulate that immune system response so that you don't really, if you will, die as a consequence of a, of a hyperactive immune system. One of the very interesting things that, that we're starting to see with this COVID-19 infection is that many of the people who are so sick that they have to go on ventilators are really dying as a consequence of their immune system and the consequences of immune hyperactivity. So I think it's important to sort of modulate that with steroids early on in the course of the illness. And I, if I could go further, it, it turns out that what's really killing a lot of these people is what's called a cytokine storm. And that's basically a very complex situation of things that can lead to hemorrhaging in the brain and, 
and other parts of the body uh, hemorrhaging and leaking into the lungs where you're not getting any uh, gas exchange whatsoever. Uh, you're getting destruction of the heme pigments in the bloodstream uh, where you can't carry oxygen in the bloodstream. Uh, and all of these other things that are really not related to the virus, but really the immune system response to it. And it turns out the natural killer cells that Kevin had mentioned, they actually have um, a set of genes controlling a number of different, if you will, drills where they search and they can drill into cancer cells and viral particles and bacterial particles. And then they can inject an enzyme or a group of enzymes and stuff into those cells and cause those cells to die. And that's one of the way that natural killer cells work. Some people have mutations in those drills that these natural killer cells use. And those patients who have those mutations tend to be less able to kill off viruses, cancer cells, etc. And the immune system has to work harder to do that. And then they end up with a cytokine storm. So it's interesting to me to think about what's going on at the cellular level in the body's reaction to this virus and how steroids can help modulate that and actually protect us from dying as a consequence of our immune system. And I think this is even more important, ever, ever more important reason that we need to focus on the proper doses of steroids for stress dosing. If a patient's in the hospital, how much steroid you give them, Make sure that you don't overtreat them because that can have consequences as well. It really becomes a fine balancing act for our patients with adrenal insufficiency. And Cushing's patients are the same. They make too much steroid, but they don't have a normal stress response because they've suppressed their normal ACTH producing cells. So a patient with mild Cushing syndrome, for example, and urine cortisols that are maybe twice normal, who may need five to seven or 10 times normal to fight an infection. We have to stress those, those patients as well. I think a lot of physicians don't really comprehend that, or it seems counterintuitive to give stress those steroids to a Cushing's patient, but you have to look at what that patient's steroids are. And remember, they can't mount a stress response to an infection. They need to be stress dosed as well. Yeah, I think you mentioned that uh, very nicely because that's probably why I think would explain why um, you, you talked about the immune system and some patients have natural killer cells that work well and some patients don't and may explain why some patients do well and some patients, you know, even the younger patients uh, end up not doing so well. That Patients that you think that would do well but perhaps not do well and, mm -hmm. and dying. And right. so it's almost Im impossible to kind of predict which are the types of patients that would do, uh, would respond reasonably well and those that don't. So... Um, so I think, and the, and the fine line is also very nicely set as well, because you don't want your immune system to be too comp or too suppressed. Neither you don't want your immune system to be too hyped up, because uh, you know uh, that can actually increase uh, your the immune system, and actually you actually your immune system actually kills you because of its overactivity. Uh, uh, in a funny kind of way that uh, it does that. And, and I think steroids can help sort of modulate that, but the dosing is going to be crucial. I don't think we know actually how much and how long we should be dosing them, but we do know that obviously overdosing them for too long of a period of time is obviously going to be uh, detrimental um, to, to the long-term outcomes of these patients. Well, that's so interesting and right, as you say, counterintuitive as well, you know. It, uh, so for patients with uh, active uh, Cushing syndrome, 
what additional treatment steps need to be taken to reduce their susceptibility to catching this virus? Yeah, again, like what Dr. Blevins said earlier, you know, Cushing patients, by definition, they are, uh, they are exposed to too much cortisol for a prolonged period of time. And so uh, when you when you've diagnosed the patient with Cushing's uh, syndrome, be it pituitary cause or ectopic cause, um, uh, you, you want to, you know, the first thing is to treat them. And so certainly for pituitary patients, uh, we've always... Uh, recommend that if possible first line of treatment would be uh, surgery if you if there is a good indication that the the source is uh, coming from the pituitary but because now I think with the situation that we're in 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 in, in many hospitals where we are having to postpone or defer many elective surgeries uh, and, and, many, and many other procedures, like for example, I was trying to get an IPSS on a patient the other day and, and it was challenging to get it because technically an IPSS is, a, uh, is not an urgent procedure. Uh, it's not an emergency yeah. procedure. So, um, so if you are clear in your mind as a clinician that a patient has hypercortisolemia, uh, I think, and, and you know that uh, surgery or, or is, is not something that you can offer them at least in the, in the near future. It's important that you offer the patient um, a treatment, typically would be medical treatment, to, to calm their cortisol levels down, so to speak, to reduce their, their susceptibility from mm -hmm. developing these infections. So I would think that medical therapy and choosing the right medical therapy would be very important to uh, institute in these patients, at least to try and reduce uh, their hypercortisolemia to begin with and to keep them within normal, to keep them in eucortisolemic uh, range, if you like. Kevin, what would you think about a patient who was on uh, um, Corlum or Mifepristone who had Cushing's and became infected with COVID-19? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very good question. I know. Um, so even without COVID-19, this has been always a very topical issue because what happens to Corlin patients if they are being infected from a pneumonia or even being infected from any form of infection? And the conventional wisdom originally was that, okay, you have to stop Corlin uh, at least for two, three weeks given the long uh, half-life of Corlin. And, um, and then at the same time, you would uh, replace them with or actually treat them therapeutically with large doses of dexamethasone to overcome the uh, antagonism that the drug colin would uh, affect on the corticoid receptors. So I think for patients on colin, I think they need to be very well educated on what to do if they if they think they are potentially going to be infected. Because I I guess the first thing they need to do would be to stop the medication immediately. Uh, and instead of using the typical stress doses, they would need much higher doses of dexamethasone, generally four, four milligrams at least, or even up to 12 milligrams to, um, to treat them to, uh, for, uh, as a form of stress dosing for these types of patients. Yeah, very well put. I agree uh, with everything that you said. It's probably the biggest enigma for a Cushing's patient who's on uh, medical therapy is what do you do with your stress dose steroids if you get infected with COVID-19 where you need that glucocorticoid receptor 
to be able to hit it with steroids to prevent the cytokine storm. So it's uh, but but I agree a hundred percent with the way you would manage those patients. Interesting. Very, very just quite so it's this is so informative. I can't tell you how much information you guys will be given to to our listeners. So let me uh, switch now to you know, if somebody with COVID-19 is suspected and uh, they need to be quarantined at home, what actions uh, should they take? And, um, you know, if the deterioration happens, what actions should they take as they feel that they're deteriorating? I think, the, yeah, go ahead, Lewis. The first thing I... I think someone who feels they might have COVID-19 should do would be to call their doctor's office to figure out whether they need to adjust steroids, whether they need to adjust insulin doses, what have you. Uh, and then the second thing would be to figure out where to get testing to decide whether they truly actually have COVID-19 or something else. Uh, the testing is another whole story. Mm -hmm. At our institution, the positivity of test results is about 4 to 5%. Uh, so a lot of people have symptoms, concern they have COVID-19 infection, get tested, only about 4 to 5% are positive. I was going to, that's so interesting. What we know, yeah. yeah, that's a low number of people yeah. who are, of everybody tested who actually have the infection. But what we don't know is what's the real, what's the false negative rate? Um, what proportion of people actually have a negative test result but have the disease. You know, some people think the sensitivity of the test is 70%, so that the false negative rate would be 30% then or so, uh, if I did the math right on, on that. But at, at any rate, that the test is only going to be positive in 70% of the people with the COVID-19. And this may be one of those reasons you're starting to see articles in the, in the newspapers and websites about people who thought they had recovered, but then tested positive a few days or a week or two later. Uh, first off, the sampling might not have been proper, uh, or the viral load might not have been high enough to get the positive result, or the test just simply didn't pick up the virus, even though it was there. Um, so the, the third step after the first two, call your doctor, get tested, would be uh, to work with your physician to determine whether you need to be followed at home, self-quarantined, or whether you need to be in the hospital. And I think that people who have very high fevers and significant cough and shortness of breath and maybe some cyanosis clearly need to be in the hospital getting oxygen. Uh, if you can stay home and be treated at home, it's probably the wisest thing to do uh, because you're going to potentially expose fewer people and health, fewer healthcare providers. And also, if you don't need hospital care, you shouldn't avail yourself of hospital care. Uh, those patients who uh, sort of have those more serious forms of the illness and maybe no oxygen supplementation should probably present to an emergency room, maybe even call ahead and say, pretty clear I have COVID-19 or I've been tested, mm -hmm. I'm positive, and I need to come to the ER so they can tell you what to do when you get there before you get out of your car and walk into the building. Yeah, and warn the health workers that... that and they want to meet you. I don't know what they're doing at our institution, but if I were in charge of the ER, I would meet people outside with a mask. Uh, just get a mask on them yeah. as quickly as is possible before they come into the building and uh, and uh, and all of that for the intake. So I think it's, it's not like I feel bad, I feel terrible, I've got a cough and a fever, I'm going to go to the emergency room. I think that with this illness, unless you really think you're dying of shortness of breath, probably need to call a doctor or the hospital first before you go in. 
And just to add to your comments, uh, Louis, uh, Dr. Blevins, is that um, so patients that who, who end up getting tested, uh, they should probably be told that they should assume they have COVID positive until proven otherwise. Uh, because what you don't want to happen is that you test a patient and then the results come back five days later and then the patient goes out thinking that they are not <laughs> negative and then I agree. Yes. <laughs> and then you know they go on infecting everybody else, even though they are technically a relatively asymptomatic. So they have to assume it's just like the, the test that you do for pulmonary embolism, you have to assume that they are positive until which is a bit of a nuisance for the patient because yep. then they're having to quarantine themselves five days, six days at home because there are places where the results take that long to come back. Exactly. And they have to assume that they have COVID until proven otherwise. Um, and they have to take necessary measures. And in that situation, specifically for our endocrine patients who are on steroids, for example, they need to make sure that they stock themselves with enough um, medications and make sure that they're well hydrated, make sure that they have enough uh, uh, medications that would last them uh, during the period that they are quarantined and that they are not going outside and potentially infecting other people as well. And speaking of medications, there are enough publications out there that suggest that the use of ibuprofen may be associated with worse than it makes sense to me to add to that, to tell people don't take ibuprofen for fever, take Tylenol. Yeah, Tylenol, that's right. Right. It's important that people know that um, that you know every day we are listening listening to the news and it's almost like it's doom and gloom and numbers are going up and then even people who are dying that you know it's just a number and but um, I think it's important to put it into proper context and uh, numbers because and I know the numbers may not be correct but at least. By what we have so far, we can say, look, um, the death rate of, of patients who, who develop COVID-19, um, at least from the numbers we have, now I'm sure you know, it's debatable whether they're correct or not, but at least with the numbers we have, are probably in the region between 2% to 8%, um, which if you look at the big picture, it's still... Um, reasonably small numbers compared to say the Ebola virus, which killed pretty much much you know, 30 to 50% of patients. So from that standpoint, um, that is, uh, there is a positivity in that not everybody who gets COVID-19 uh, is going to die. Or, and that in fact, if anything, you can also potentially suspect that a lot of patients who are uh, diagnosed with positive COVID-19 recover and majority of them over 80 percent of them recover uh, it's just that you don't hear so much about them because it's it's they recover and you know it's uh, as opposed to patients who are dying and they have you know a, a very significant story to tell so i think it's not doom and gloom but it's still something that it's important that we grasp and we uh, we take it seriously i think the thing that's uh, of, uh scares people a lot is the fact that we don't know much about the virus itself because it's a new virus and how it behaves. We don't have if, uh, reliable testing measures. We don't have a, a medication that we can treat it. We don't have a vaccine and that it's highly in contagious. But in terms of the death rates, uh, it's still 
below 10%, I would say. Uh, so compared to other things like, you know, lung cancers or, or, or other health issues, other health issues or uh, heart attacks, it's, it's, it's still, a, I would say, a relatively low number. We're all in it together. So, and um, I'm sure we'll come out, uh, we'll beat this thing, but, uh, and then I'm sure in 50 years, we'll, we'll, we'll look back and say, this is a lot of things that we've learned. But for now, I think we all just have to be very um, sensible and, very, and socially uh, 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 sensitive to others. And, and like I said, not, and like we all say, not to spread it as much as we can. Yeah. And at the same time, maintaining your sanity at home, I suppose, for many people. And that's very important too. Yes, I want to close by encouraging people to continue to practice social isolation or distancing, whatever term you want to call it, quarantining, or lots of different terms that are being used, uh, including shelter at home. Uh, and uh, do all of those things. Continue to wash your hands, use gels. If you've got access, use a mask. And uh, let's try to, as they say, flatten the curve. I like to say prevent the spread. Uh, try first not to catch it, and then if you have it, to not spread it. And uh, I think that we'll all uh, turn out uh, to be much better off and, and see our way through this much easier if we continue these very arduous and often difficult uh, uh, dramatic changes in the way we live our daily lives. Um, so. Uh, I'm Kevin Yoon here from the Barrow Neurological Institute in Arizona, and I would like to uh, express my sincere thanks to uh, uh, Jorge here for allowing me uh, to say a few words um, on how we should help our patients and how we should educate them, uh, because at the end of the day, uh, these are very uh, anxious times for all our patients, and uh, I'm thankful that I'm given an opportunity to say a few words to uh, hopefully put uh, some sense into this craziness that we are going through at this moment in time. So thank you very much, Jorge. Uh, Lewis Blevins of uh, University of California, San Francisco. It was a pleasure to join you two fine gentlemen today to discuss this very interesting topic. And uh, let's all stay safe and uh, do our part to uh, spread the word about the appropriate ways to uh, deal with this infection. Should you have an endocrine disorder, that puts you at an increased risk for an adverse outcome of infection. Well, thanks so much again, Dr. Ewan and Dr. Blevins. Uh, I want to thank you from, uh, I'm sure our patients are going to be extremely interested in listening for what you have to say. And thank you again for your time. You have been listening to an exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. This is Jorge Fascinetti. Thank you for listening. <laughs>